With experience in the legislative, executive, and corporate arena, you could say that Mike Jones has accrued more titles than your local library. Now that his time in St. Louis County government is finished, Jones has plenty to say about the region's political leadership and educational infrastructure. Get ready because Jones is about to dispense words of wisdom about St. Louis's future on the latest edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair yes, to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Salutations and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Not the Jason Rosenbaum who made news this weekend when he uh, left Google <laughs> to head Hillary Clinton's digital campaign. No, I am not that Jason Rosenbaum. I just want to point out there are multiple Jason Rosenbaums out there. <laughs> Uh, joining me in studio is Joe Manis, and, also a St. Louis Public Radio. And a man of many titles and, and a political legend is in the house right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't think he could make it, but I have not been on a show where it opened with salutations, so I'm impressed. <laughs> it's uh, Mike Jones, former St. Louis Alderman, former executive director of the St. Louis Housing Authority, former deputy mayor to Clarence Harmon, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Former, former Anheuser-Busch executive, former special policy advisor to St. Louis uh, County Executive Charlie Dooley. As I said in the introduction, more titles than a local library. It couldn't keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we could probably spend a whole show just on your background. Um, just tell us a little bit about who Mike Jones is and kind of how he got into St. Louis politics. Um, I basically born and raised in St. Louis, just like just about everybody else here. And I went to Beaumont High School, class of 67. Joe was going to ask you that question. <laughs> yes, I was. Yeah, you're ahead of me. In fact, at... Mr. Jones and I know each other from the late 1970s when I was covering the St. Louis Board of Aldermen, and he was a young alderman. Yeah, right. I was just going to mention, you're, I think you're the second Beaumont uh, High School graduate to be on the show. Joshua Peters, a state representative from St. Louis, also went to Beaumont High School. And I believe Tommy Pearson, who is now running for lieutenant governor, also went to Beaumont High well, School as well. I, I didn't realize Tommy uh, went to Beaumont. Uh, according wow. to his biogra- bio on his okay, website. Okay, then, then, then you wouldn't... Uh, you wouldn't lie about going to Beaumont. <laughs> Is that good or bad? Uh, both. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, I read an article that Joe wrote uh, that was also paired with a profile of Darlene Green, and it mentioned the fact that you went to the University of Missouri with mm-hmm. the help of some some business people. Is that correct? Uh, well, no. I uh, no. I attended. Now, I remember the 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 article, but no, I left Beaumont going to the University of Missouri, uh, St. Louis, uh, just because accidentally one day I was coming down Natural Bridge and saw the sign that said University of Missouri, St. Louis, and so I went there as, as opposed to going to Harris-Stowe. Mm-hmm. I mean, so... Uh, uh, and I could catch the Natural Bridge bus and and go to college. So uh, that's that's ultimately how I ended up at Umsel in the late in the late sixties. Mm-hmm. And then, when did you first kind of get involved in politics? Uh, in one regard, I got involved in college. I, I was a founding member of the Association of Black Collegiates at at Umsel. And so the late 60s was a interesting time, not only in America, but in the world. Yeah. So my, uh, I'm not a product of the civil rights 
uh, movement. I'm a product of the black power, the student movement, and that's a whole different dynamic. Yeah, because I think that's that's a distinction to make because people tend to just lump everybody who's over 50 in certain groups. And for African-Americans, that's really not the case. Many of the ones who are active in the civil rights movement initially are a little older. Right. Bill Clay, is, for example, if you just had to say St. Louis politics and, and want to think about iconic figure, Bill Clay is a product of the civil rights movement. Yes, Norman he was arrested. Say, Norman Say is a product of the civil rights movement. Vervis Jones and I, for example, though, we're products of the black student movement. So uh, if, if I wanted to tie my political, emotional... Uh, uh, geography, I would tie it back to Malcolm and not Dr. King. Yeah, and that was really distinctive when you were young right? Uh, in the St. Louis Board of Aldermen because there was these two groups. There were the guys who were just, a, and women, but mainly men, who were just a little bit older, the, um, the original uh, Congressman Clay group, and then your group. Right. And so there was this difference between these college students and uh, who had one view and then the people who really had come up from the streets and had really done a lot of the protesting was very different. And not to get too micro, because, uh, again, we could go on, on and on about it, but I've noticed, like, in the Board of Aldermen now, there is kind of that dynamic at play where there are the older, more established politicians and maybe this wave of younger people of both races that are there. Was it kind of like that back uh, then? Yeah, well, it's, it's always been like that. I would say I was on the Board of Aldermen with myself, Vervis Jones, Mike and Steve Roberts, and Wayman Smith. We were all right. there at the same time. And, Wayman was and a little Vince older. Shamel, who was but, the board, on the Board of Aldermen. But then. Vince got elected mayor at the same year. 1981. And, yeah, the same year Vervis and I got elected. Now, Steve and Mike were already on the board. Vervis and I came in 81 when Vince uh, got elected mayor. I would say uh, the first wave of uh, reform politicians or new wave politicians were Bill Spatanik, Dick right. Gephardt. They were the first. Late, I think, 60, late, late, late 70s, late, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, mid-70s. Yeah, I, yeah, right, right, mid, right. Mid-70s. Uh, I would say Vervis, the Roberts brothers, Wayman, and Wayman was there. Wayman was kind of bridge between both groups because he's really kind of in more was in more of their generation. We represented the black iteration of what they were ten to twelve years ahead of us. I guess if you so, it didn't all happen at the at at the same time. It happened in ways. I think fundamentally, it's healthy for a political ecosystem to have that kind of turnover. And the difference between, I would say, the city politics and the, uh, what I'll say, the, what county I would say, passes for political culture in the county, is in the city, it was always a contested environment. You took seats from people. Yes. You, you, you challenged for power. So it was, a, it was a lot like young lions challenging old lions for control over pride. And so if you were smart enough, tough enough, you made it. If you weren't smart enough or tough enough, you didn't make it. So it was trial by combat, and if you were good enough, you emerged. In the county, uh, it, it didn't evolve. Politics or the culture of politics didn't evolve like that. One of the things that I think is a weakness in your generation, Jason, of politicians, 
is this whole notion of being mentored and swung somebody make me something. And none of us ever expected anybody to make us anything. Matter of fact, I, I got a real simple political rule, and that is politics is you can have what you can take and you can keep what you can hold. But I read in Joe's article that you've been a mentor to many black political politicians. Yeah, is that true? That, yeah, but that's not the – I did I did for young men and women who talk to me the same that old guys did for me. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I can't make you anything. I can tell you how the game goes. So it, right. it's, it's, like young, yeah, it's like young players dressing in the locker room next to a veteran. So the veteran can talk to you. Here's what it means to be a professional. Here's what it means now that you're in this game. Well, that's a good segue into one of the topics I want to deal with, because okay. one of the reasons why I want to have you on this show is when I was listening to your interview with DJ Wilson on KDHX, you mentioned how you feel like there's a void within black political leadership in St. Louis. And I think... Especially in St. Louis County. Especially in St. Louis County, maybe even in the city as well. And, and I have kind of a hypothesis that the reaction to Michael Brown's death might, was somehow divided among the black political leadership for a variety of reasons. Um, I, But rather than me opine on that, I kind of want to get your perspective on why you think there is that void and what effect do you think it had after Michael Brown died August 9th? Well, I, I'll say that Michael Brown, August 9th, really uh, changed the dynamic of politics and social uh, activist culture in St. Louis County particularly. I don't know if it changed that much in the city, but I have to say it definitely did in the county. Um, I think all change is generational. I'll even extend the uh, conversation even past Ferguson, but I think what you see in St. Louis is indicative of uh, what's going on in the country, and that's an intolerance legitimate intolerance on the part of younger black Americans for the passivity and status quo leadership of the generation, a generation and a half that's been ahead of them. And I think their impatience is and, and anger at that is well-placed. And, and, and so I think if, if I looked at, at, at our history over 50 years, and I'll just take St. Louis, I'll localize okay. it, but you had what I call movement politicians. They were either civil rights, they came from the civil rights movement, and that drove their politics, or they came from the black student movement, and that drove their politics. So there were people with, no matter what you thought of them individuals, they had agendas, they had large agendas. Uh, and then with the success of the civil rights movement, we, create, we started to get career politicians, that black politicians basically acting just like white politicians. And for those politicians, black voters were just like any other group of voters to be managed. So they didn't see themselves as representatives of a, a group that they had to seek justice for. Now, they weren't opposed to that, but I would argue that the black politician who's in his 40s or 50s, he or she, much more sees themselves as a careerist. And I'll, I'll just because I don't particularly care for him, uh, and I don't know him, so that's the qualification. 
I look at Harold Ford Jr. on Morning Joe, and I knew what his father looked and sounded like in Congress, and they're two different, and, and they're completely two different guys. And 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 I don't not picking on him personally. I'm just saying that's how big the change is from that 20 years to to, to the Well, day. you could say that even about uh, retired Congressman Bill Clay and the current Congressman. Lacey Clay. Because that not, was yeah, not right. that they're any different on effectiveness or whatever, right. but they're different people, right. different upbringings. But that was what I was going to ask because at the same time that County Executive Dooley was being primaried by Steve Stanger, I was paying attention to the aforementioned Joshua Peters race. The reason why I mentioned on the outset that I thought that right. the leadership was divided after Ferguson, because if you look at that race, it pretty much split the black political leadership into two camps, people who wanted to send a message to Lacey Clay because Joshua Peters was a former aide. So you had Maria Chappelle Nadal, Antonio Fred, Sharon Tyus, you know, all St. Louis politicians backing Chris Carter and the Carter family. And then you had kind of the, the Clay machine and their allies on the other hand. And I really think that that really acrimonious, nasty race and the divisions that were done that way kind of rolled over into the Ferguson response, and that's why I saw all sorts of divisions there. Am I looking at that too micro? Or? Yeah, I, I think you might be giving it uh, a little bit more depth than it was there. That, sure. that, that the kind of intramural uh, gang wars yeah. uh, have always been part of St. But was that part of kind of the impatience that you mentioned that maybe some people were kind of upset with Congressman no, Clay? I, I, would, I, I would put it like this. I, I, I can tell you that in 50 years of St. Louis politics, there were people that were upset with the other Congressman Understood. Clay. So, so and these kind of intermittent territorial fights have always been part of the political landscape of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Now, it's unusual to see it in St. Louis County, but uh, I'm a product of those intramural wars. Okay. okay. I just and, wanted to touch on that. But well, yes, and, and it's white and black in the right, city. Exactly. I mean, it's not maybe as pronounced as it used to be. Right. But back in the day, sounding yeah. like the old lady I am, back in right. the 70s. I mean, I remember one time when Vince Shamel took on uh, Red Villa during a Board of Aldermen meeting. And Red Villa was like the chairman of one of the most powerful committees and had been there forever. And he's, I mean, they're having this fight. And I'm thinking, I think. Shamel is going to lose this one, yeah. but but I mean, but this is just an example of the types of things that I, would happen. I remember in the mid, I remember in the mid eighties, Bill, I mean, uh, Vince, taking on Congressman Clay yes. Slate in the Democratic primary, yes. state representative, state senate. I mean, and it was a major war. Now Vince got killed in it. I mean, but the point is, these things are. Part and parcel of St. But Louis they County never, policy. hardly ever happened in the county. That's right. the difference. Th that's the the difference. county, it's all behind the scenes. I mean, the the official meeting is always very nice. If you really want to know what's right. going on, you need to go to that little pre-meeting several hours before. It's all very different. You were an advisor to St. Louis County Executive Dooley. Before we do a post-mortem on that, do you want to talk about a political thing that happened after Michael Brown's uh, death, and that's the Fannie Lou Hammer Coalition? That do you were involved in. You were involved yeah. in. So do you think that that was an example of leadership exerting itself that was missing? What was kind of your, your yeah, thought of how I, I, what happened I, I, there? I'm clear for me that there was a general feeling among black elected officials that the manner in which 
duly was treated was disrespectful to him, but by extension disrespectful to the entire black political class and black political community. Because black politicians lose races every day to white politicians, okay? And in a city or a county that's uh, 75% white, I mean, you can't even say that was unusual. You couldn't even say uh, that race was particularly the driver when he had been he won the job three times. Right. You, you could say that, that, that the time just ran out. But the whole tone and texture, uh, I'd say starting with the Post-Dispatch editorial approach and just reinforced, seemed to be fundamentally disrespectful of black political presence. And, and I actually have a clip from County Executive Dooley now. After his last county council meeting, news leaked out that the U.S. attorney was not going to charge anybody about the whole Sandstone subcontract case. So we all went, we being the press corps, went up to him and asked him for his response on that. And this is what he had to say. In the St. Louis metropolitan area, you know what's happened in the last couple of years. And you see an African-American elected official is alleged to have done some wrongdoing. And the 75 percent of the population is non-African-American. What do you think is going to happen? What happened is exactly what happened. I lost in all of the non-African American townships in this county, which I have never done before. So was that basically what you were talking about there as far as the tone and the tenor of what happened? Yeah, and, 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 and it, was a pub, it was the tone and the tenor of the entire public discussion around one of the, one of the things that you always fight against uh, if you're a black public official. Generally speaking, we've demonized politics so bad that the general, particularly the general white public, thinks all politicians are incompetent and stupid. And if they're black, they're incompetent, stupid, and dishonest. So when black elected officials start having their integrity challenge. It's totally different than disagreeing with about what they're doing and the intellectual capacity. And you mentioned Reardon, and that was what I got into it with him about the notion of uh, the county executive duly didn't have basically the intellectual capacity to do the job. Those are, are dog whistle issues, and especially if you're black. You know what uh, mainstream media and mainstream opinion is is talking about. Are there any big thinkers in the region right now? And I'm and I'm casting a broad net. I'm not talking, you know, anybody. In my in my view, no. Okay. By my standard. And why do you think that is? I mean, just looking at it from an analytical perspective, why are there no big thinkers, black or white, right now in the St. Louis area? I, I think it's 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 what happened to politics and media over the last thirty years that I watched it decline that politics used to, elections used to be just a precursor to governing, and that politics included governing. Now we've uh, made elections an industry. And so you got all of these consultants, which for me are the the political equivalent of pimps. We've had a bunch of consultants <laughs> on. I'll yeah, have to make sure and if some, they and, and some of my best friends are consultants. Okay, <laughs> let's put it like that. But what I'm saying is, so they've dumbed the whole process down, and they make everything about 
the election. I want uh, uh, for anybody in the audience listening who's old enough to to remember Robert Rutherford's uh, yes. movie, The Candidate. In fact, it was just on cable just a few days ago. Okay, and and at the end, him and Peter Doyle have the conversation that he's now the senator. It was it was really Peter Doyle's idea as the consultant. Yeah, and, and they and, defeated this veteran who right. had been there forever. And, and and Peter Doyle is walking away to go get on an airplane, and uh, 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 Robert Redford basically asked him, "What do I do now?" And Doyle said, "Well, it's kind of your problem." Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great scene because Robert Redford looks at him, and there's this crowd at the right. door, and they're right. clamoring to get in to shake his hand, right. and Redford looks at him and says. What do I do now? Right. And Doyle is just looking at him like, well, hey, it's your problem. You know, right. and, he, and he's, here he is. And now that, he has and, to govern. And that's the precursor. And when I came into politics, you actually, no matter who you were, left, right, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, you got in for the opportunity to govern. Now people get in politics just to get elected. And they it's don't kind of have a celebrity a clue. thing. Right. And they don't have a clue what they're going to do after they get well, there. Well, before we move on to education, because I do want to talk about that before we, we sign off, I do want to play a clip that is actually of you talking to the county council right before Dooley's primary loss. I think it was actually about a year ago. And then I just kind of want to use it as a jumping off point for a postmortem on, on the Dooley administration. In your entire worthless political life, you have never spoken to any issue that affects black children, black adults, in any shape, form, or fashion. And what I'm really taken aback by, matter of fact, almost speechless, that you would think that I would let a political zero like you use black children to benefit their personal political agenda. That's not going to happen. Now you're talking to Stinger, correct? So the reason I brought that up is before that was before August 9th. And if, if you thought that the county council meetings were crazy after August 9th, we were kind of in a one to two year period where there was constant political warfare on the county council and in county government. Obviously, Stanger emerged victorious because he's now the county executive. But as somebody who was in the administration then, what was it kind of like to deal with that sort of thing? I mean, you know, with with you even getting involved in that point. And are there any broader lessons? Uh, yeah. I, well, I think it, again, uh, if, if I think it would be honest to say that the whole process of governing shut down at least for a year to fifteen months. Uh, and the county government started to resemble the United States Congress. <laughs> now, I mean, in, 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 in the sense that the operation of the government ceased to be the prime objective. And again, it goes back to me, the lack of the changing of the, of the nature of people who now get elected. There was a time when I first got into this business, the way it used to operate was that fundamentally you even had your fights in a way that didn't undermine or impede your ability to do the job once you came back and even while you were doing it. There was even a political season. Nobody. The reason elections last so long is because the people, that the consultants that I referred to as pimps make a lot of money while the process is going. It doesn't take two years to elect or four years to elect a new president. It takes about nine months if you really want to know the truth. But if you're a professional consultant, you got people calling up for money, calling people they don't know for money 
to do what I haven't figured out yet. So it, it politicizes the whole. Pro- or I would say it even it cheapens the entire process because the process will always be political. Right. But if 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 there's some integrity in the process, and by integrity, all I mean is we both know what our jobs are, and um, uh, just to give you a short example of what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, six or seven when Claire McCaskill was running, we were and Steve. Uh, Elman and I were talking about this, uh, and it was a year before the election year, because the year should be talent. The year before the election, she wanted to have a press conference uh, on Labor Day, and she wanted to invite the county executive. I remember that, 2005, yes. And basically my advice to him is you can't do that in 2005. If you do it in September 2006, talent knows why you're there. You're a Democrat. You're supposed to... uh, But this uh, campaign basically started in 2011 when Stanger basically derailed the budget where he shut down half the parks. This was a three-year campaign. And all all I'm talking about, Elman and I laughed about it. And uh, uh, Elman's the county executive in St. Charles County and a Republican. right? And so we were laughing and, and, and about it, and, and I said, well, I told the county executive when he asked, what should I tell uh, Claire? He said, I said, tell him what uh, uh, Michael Corleone said. I got business with Hyman Roth. I can't do this right now. Understood. <laughs> so, I mean, and people used to understand when they had business. So there's a season for this, okay? And, and the season can't last the whole term Understood. of the government. So getting back to Jason's point, that in the, in the contest between Stanger and Dooley, though, it did go on. I mean, it, there was, you know, battle lines right. drawn several years out. Right. Yeah. Well, so what do you think? I mean, what was that like, and what do you think? Did you guys handle it right? Oh, I mean, uh, well, he won, so obviously uh, it reinforces that predisposition. My my comment, really, the tone of my comments, and, and they were as hostile uh, as they were consciously, because I really wasn't quite that mad, is that there is a perception and for me, there's a perception, and it, the Fannie Lou Hamer movement came from there. There's a perception among black political class that, that, that white politicians, white political influencers, have absolutely no regard uh, for uh, the position of, of black uh, public leaders. So I was responding to a comment that he had made, that Stanger had made about me and on the State Board of Education and the Normandy School. So he had drug me into his political campaign. And the way I learned my politics is that if if you think somebody's getting ready to challenge you, they act like they're going to do it, you try to hit them in the face as hard as you can. And when you knock them down, put your foot on their neck and keep it there till you hear it break. And then it, that way, people don't do that kind of stuff to you. Actually, Claire McCaskill used that illustration to me one time, yeah. but I won't. But but obviously, I mean, so so in other words, you're saying that your angry comments at the county executive meetings were partly uh, to point out that hey, you don't do this to me, and nothing happens. That's right. Yeah. So, but you are you you are currently a member of the state board of education. Um, you were a member at the time of that statement. 
I just wanted to ask kind of generally and then maybe delve into a little bit more specifics. What do you think the lay of the land is in the St. Louis region for for education, specifically involving the African-American community and in some of the, the schools which are struggling right now? Because I, 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 I know from talk, from hearing you talk before, that's a big concern. Yeah, I, I think it's uneven, obviously. Uh, uh, there are things in the structurally the way we deliver public education that really going to have to be reassessed. I think, and and I've said this before, that relative to the black community, we're going to have to find a way to make education the number one political priority on the agenda. Matter of fact, it's got to be the only thing on the agenda, and, and, and I've said here that we have to be as irrational about education as the NRA is about guns. So they look at everything, every issue is through the prism of the Second Amendment. They've been very effective at it. I don't think that the black community can afford to worry about other issues unless and until they impact education. So um, whether the Rams stay or go is irrelevant to the quality of education of black children. So for me, I don't have a position on it and don't don't care one way or the other. So if, if somebody was going to ask me for political support, for a project like that, if I was in the legislature or someplace of some influence, my, I would tie it back to, well, what are you going to do about early childhood, or what are you going to do about the transfer law? So if you, now that's that's just old-fashioned politics. If you can't fix what's, what my problem is, I really don't care about your problem, and in that marketplace is where we negotiate. Well, this sort of get back to what you were saying before, that, that you don't believe there's strong enough leadership. Uh, Particularly in the in the African American among African Americans in the county, am I correct? And yeah. how does that affect the school, the whole school board? And, thing? and and also, just we had Rodney Hubbard on a couple of weeks ago. We kind of touched on the fact that there is kind of a division within, I would say, Democratic politics in general, not just Black Democratic politics. Some who are boisterously against vouchers and school choice stuff, and those who are more inclined to support it. So. Well, I think you got two. I mean, education is a real complicated yeah. issue. And what I've discovered when I first got there and after about a year, that, that almost nobody knows what they're talking about yeah. when they start talking about it. Okay, right. you got people, you know, it's just like football. Everybody's got an opinion on what happened, what play you should have run on Sunday, but nobody was at, none of these people are at practice. I think <laughs> uh, 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 the, the, the problem is that, and I, I sum it up like this. There are structural changes you need to do to education, okay, that reflect the reality of the 21st century. You have two groups of people on the reform side. There are people who are genuinely interested in reform. Some of the reforms are kind of naive, but they are genuinely interested. Then you got another group, and I think it's the larger group, and they are the, I call them the privatizers, the pirates, and the profiteers, because education is a huge industry, and therefore reform in order to skim money out of the public education system. Uh, imagine charter schools was a classic example of the board when we uh, suspended the sponsor, actually closed Imagine Schools. 
the problem, as I see it, and and this is going to uh, uh, make the cheeks of people in education <laughs> tighten, is that the education establishment has lost the moral high ground because they're no longer agents for change and evolving the system to meet the needs of children today. They're much more interested in protecting a status quo. And by the and educational... A of, yeah, and, and a lot of that status quo doesn't work for the children you just talked about. So mm-hmm. if you're black, I think you got to figure out what does reform look like that maintains the integrity of the idea of public education and at the same time get you the reform and efficiency that you need to meet the needs I, of I kids. Po- I apologize for interrupting, but okay, I was going to no say problem. like an educational establishment might be principals, teachers, you know, everybody, school boards. Is everybody yeah, like gets that. paid to manage the existing infrastructure. Just wanted to make that clear, yeah. Joe. Now, where do you think the state board is going to come in on some of this stuff while well, you're on it anyway? I think we got limited, you know, if you want to think about education in Missouri and you need uh, an analogy or a parable think about education in Mississippi okay we, we, we are at the bottom of uh, uh, the trough uh, uh, our, our schools are fundamentally underfunded we don't have a quality early childhood the reason early childhood is so important is all the science tells you that 80 percent of the brain is wired by the time you get to be uh, three years old. By the time you're five years old, it's almost uh, uh, you're almost a finished product, and you get bigger and you mature and stuff. But it, but but your uh, cognitive abilities are fairly set. And the reason early childhood is so important is. We normally think of life is like the 1600 meters. It's a long race. It doesn't matter where you start. It really is how strong you can finish. But reality for children is life is more like the 100 meters. And the 100 meters is all about to start. I don't care how fast you run. If you get out the blocks slow or late, you will never run fast enough to catch the guys in front of you. So early childhood is critical for anybody to to have a chance at success at that 1600 meters so yeah. that, that well i wanted to talk about normandy because that's obviously a big concern for the mm-hmm. the board of education um for our, our listeners background um it was basically reconfigured into i guess a, a district that i guess has no accreditation now or does it have accreditation and we don't, and it doesn't have a, right accreditation. it doesn't have accreditation and I, i'm just curious now that 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 the latest iteration of the bill that tried to restructure the transfer laws vetoed and is not going to get overridden. What, what does the future hold for that district given that, you know, people are still transferring out of it and the money tuition aspect is still somewhat acute? Or maybe it's not acute. Well, be interesting uh, it, 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 it fundamentally, uh, the how many kids actually transfer, students transfer basically determines uh, what their cash position will be in any given year. Yeah. It looks like this year they will have enough money to remain open. Now the question is, is that a budget that allows them to pay the bills versus a budget that allows them to educate the kids? So so, so part of this effort is about resource allocation. Um, we, our 
admit that our transition to the new governance uh, wasn't any place close to smooth, and we probably lost a year in that transition. So even though we took over, we wanted things to get better, I would not say they got better in the last year. So this year you, you had stable leadership at, at, at both the superintendent level now, you had it at the governance level with, with the new board. Uh, they're in the same schedule in terms of hiring teachers, so everybody will be there. And so this will be the first year that they might have a chance to see what they can do, uh, presuming that they have enough resources. And uh, our balancing act in, in, in the year before that was how do you preserve the right of kids to transfer because I could not find a morally justifiable reason for telling a parent or parents that you should leave your child in Normandy if you think they ought to go. Because that probably is what happened. Let's take the transfer out of it. One of the things that I think people don't realize is while I think there's a perception that the municipalities that make up the Normandy School District are just universally impoverished, they're actually filled with some moderately affluent African-American majority uh, municipalities. Right. And I would assume that many of them, many of the families within those cities, like Greendale, Belnor, right. to some extent Normandy, those types of cities, they probably send their kids to private school already, and they're not participating in, in the public school. Is I that would, one of the problems I there? Would, well, I mean, people make individual choices. Yeah. They got a right to in every, because I did on, on, on my kids. Okay. Uh, uh, so... We we had competing equities. You had people who wanted to go, and they deserved that opportunity because mm-hmm. the school system wasn't good enough. But the reality is most families don't choose to transfer. So even at the high-water mark of the DSAG program, it was 16%, 17% of the school. Yeah. So at Normandy, that was about the same thing. So. What happens is 85% of the kids who were there are still there. And so you got to have enough resources to, to educate them. For whatever reason they decide to stay, they stay. So the question is, how do you structure a funding mechanism that recognizes both of those uh, competing equity interests, the right to go if you want to go, but not at the expense of the kids that are staying. That'll be the legislature's decision. We are out of time. Uh, We could probably continue this for hours and talk about NBA basketball (laughs) and how the Milwaukee Bucks are going to win the the NBA finals next year, as you talked about on DJ's show. Don't bet against San Antonio. Uh, I'm not. Well, one quick question. Do you think the Fannie Lou Hamer movement will continue? I would hope so. I mean, it, it, it created an extraordinary platform with the results it produced uh, in the county executives race. And the real question is, will the nascent black elected leadership that that built it uh, be able to develop some legs and keep it going? Yeah, that'll be something we'll be watching. Uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. I'm on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. Joe's on Twitter at, at J Manis. It's J M A N N I E S. You're not on Twitter, but you do write for the St. Louis American. Yes, I do. So anybody who wants to hear more of the philosophical stylings of Mike Jones, just pick up a copy. <laughs> it's free. I pick up a copy every week. It's at my library. So thank you very much for being on our show. And until next week, thank you for having me. So long. Okay. Sure.